Now, church, my story this morning begins in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. I will tell you the story. It's a, it takes place in a time of harsh oppression, injustice, unprecedented terror and cruelty, deep sorrow in many of the people's hearts. But the irony of history is that it is in these very periods we get some of the most beautiful literature, some of the most stirring images and vivid pictures of heaven are written by people at the time when it feels like they're near hell. One of those stirring images is in Daniel chapter 7. In the time of Israel's captivity, there was a boy who had a dream. In his words, visions in the night. And partway through that dream and those visions, it disturbed him. It woke him up. And so he picked up the pen and started to write what he had seen in his visions. And this is what he saw. He said, I saw a vast ocean and the winds were driving the waves in chaos. The, the water was angry. And out of the ocean came four great beasts. And the first one looked like a lion, only it had wings until somebody tore them off. And then it stood up on its hind feet like a man. And it was told to rule the earth. The second beast was like a bear. It had three ribs in its teeth. And he was told by a voice to go and eat his fill of the flesh. And so off it went to terrorize the nations. About that time, a third one that looked like a leopard, only it had four wings and four heads. And it was told to dominate the earth and to rule over the nations. And off it went. And then there arose a fourth, like nothing I've ever seen. It had iron in its teeth. It trampled and devoured its victims. It had ten horns, which were like little kingdoms coming out of its head. And there was in the middle of these horns, a little horn, a little kingdom, a little king with a big mouth. And he started to shout profanities and blasphemies. He pulled all the attention to himself. And as I looked in the center of all of these 10 thrones, each one occupied by a king, there was another one in the center of them. And this one was different. The king who sat on it had clothing and hair that were white like wool. There was a ring of fire all around that throne and there was a river of fire coming out from that throne 
and thousands upon thousands, millions of people were gathered in front of that throne and he opened the books and was ready to judge when the little king with a big mouth started shouting more profanities and blasphemies. And when he did it, the one who was sitting on a throne struck him and killed him and threw his body into the fire. Well, the boy was, he was rattled by this. Before he could collect himself, the vision continued, he said. And then as I looked, there was one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And he approached the one who was on the center of that throne. And the one on the throne gave him all authority and power and glory. And there were millions of people around him worshiping. And I heard the one on the throne say, now his dominion will never pass away. His kingdom is forever. I was rattled. I asked somebody in my dream what these things meant. And this is what he said. The four beasts are four empires that will rule the world in succession. The ten horns are ten kings within the fourth empire. The little horn with a big mouth is the one who is waging war against the people of God. The one on the throne who is older and stronger than the other kings is the ancient of days. And the millions that are gathered around his throne are the saints. Now brace yourself. And then he said, when the one on the throne has stripped those other kings of their power, they will worship and obey the Son of Man. Every last one of them. And he will take that power and he will give it to the saints. That'll wake you up. What a night. Now the mistake you must not make when you read this is to think that this is only prophecy. It is not only prophecy. Prophecy foretells what is coming that hasn't happened yet. And so there's some prophecy in it. 
but it's never called a prophecy. It's called a vision. And when something is a vision, it's not just foreseeing what will come. It's peering into the realm, the invisible sphere, the dimension that is right next to your head this very moment. And it is seeing things that are happening in that invisible realm right now in real time, whether we see them or not. And the ability to see those things that are also happening alongside the other things we see and to articulate those things in language that is compelling is a gift. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, even if you're not great with words, you might strive for this gift because if you're ever able to capture for your generation the reality that is in the next world, right next to this one, there will always be a few, not many, but a few people who will believe it. All of the others in the empire will think it is unbearable nonsense, but there will be a few who will listen to you and they will be faithful. No matter what happens in their day, they will know that there is coming one day a new kingdom with a brand new king. You have got to say this, church. It is not enough to simply believe it and store it in your mind. You have got to say this, church. 600 years after the boy dreamer woke up, there was hope that it might come true. On the night Jesus was born, the angels said to the shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. That word means the anointed one. That word means king. Of the 220-some times it is mentioned in the New Testament, you could insert the word king every time you see Christ, and you would get a more clear picture of what the verse is actually saying. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. It's his office. He's a king. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior, the king, who is also the Lord. And so when Jesus came preaching 30 years later, he preached, the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the gospel. And that word near doesn't mean getting closer. It means right in front of you. It means the kingdom of heaven is in that space that you cannot see right next to your head where a whole lot of things you don't even believe in are true. It's here. He went on talking this, this king. He said the kingdom of heaven was like a farmer who sows seed. The kingdom, he said, was like a mustard seed. It grew into a garden. The king was like a treasure buried in the field. The kingdom uh, was like a net that caught lots of fish. The kingdom of heaven, he said, is exactly like the kingdoms of the earth, except it's the opposite. 
The powerful ones are the weak. The poor are the ones who are rich. The enemies are the ones who are forgiven. The greatest are the ones who serve. And the more he talked, the more he confused them. Nobody knew who he was or what he was trying to say. One of the questions, in fact, driving the four gospels is, who is this character? Who is he? The disciples in the boat on the stormy sea ask themselves this. Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? We don't know him. And after he preached the Sermon on the Mount, the people walked away baffled saying, we have never heard somebody speak with this kind of authority. Who is this man? And when he approached Peter in Matthew 16, he said, who do people say that I am? And when he healed the blind man in John chapter 9, they held an inquisition, the Pharisees did, to try to find out who is the character of the guy who did this? Nobody knew. Until the last story, one of them, in John's gospel. Somebody figured it out. Of all people, it was Thomas. The last one to get there. If you uh, know this story, you're already falling into the mental trap of saying, oh, I know how this story goes. Would you gratefully consider just a couple of other things? Would you? One, the story is not primarily about a doubting person learning to believe. That's not news by the time you get to John chapter 20. The gospel was written 10 to 20 years after every other gospel. And by the time the gospel of John is written, we already know from Matthew 28 that while some worshiped, others doubted. We know from Luke chapter 24 verse 11 that when the women told the apostles, their words seemed to them like an idol tale they did not believe. It is not news that Thomas is doubting. Lots of people doubted before Thomas ever arrived. Second, what Thomas is asking for is only common sense. If a man who is dead is said to be alive, wouldn't you want to see him? If I look out and see Mark DeMichael and I tell you one day that I saw Mark fly, Not just one time, I saw him fly anytime he wants. Would you believe me or would you say, hmm, I got to see this. Even if you were being kind to me and say, no, Steve, you're not out of your mind, but I still want to see this. And the reason is because you think you know how things work. Human beings cannot fly. And in Thomas's day, the dead cannot live any more than the living can fly. And so when you tell him that the one who is dead is suddenly alive, you're asking him to overturn his entire world view. You don't do that in a second. And third, my favorite, 
even though Thomas was the last to get there, he went further than anybody else had gone. This is why I think his story is in the Gospel of John, not because we're trying to see how a person who doubts can actually believe, but because we're trying to find out what is the first and most appropriate response to Jesus when you finally see who he is. With the doors closed and locked, Jesus appears. Thomas, standing, I think, off by himself, and Jesus says, peace. And then he walks over to Thomas. Oh, it's like he was there a week ago when Thomas said, unless I see. And Jesus says to Thomas, take your finger and put it in my hand and take your hand and put it in the side. Stop doubting and believe. What struck me this week, you guys, is that the thing that convinced him was not the resurrection. It was the crucifixion. The holes are not symbols of resurrection. They are symbols of crucifixion merged into the resurrection. What convinced him was not Jesus' power to conquer. What convinced him was his power to suffer. Thomas fell, I think, and said the only words one can say in a moment like that. My Lord. My God. And those are not words of affirmation. Those are testimony words. My Lord. My God. After the resurrection, Thomas is the only one who gets this. To Mary Magdalene, he's the gardener. And then when she finally gets it, she calls him rabbi. To the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he is the prophet, powerful in words and deeds. To the Jewish leader, he is one who said he was the son of man. But to Thomas, he is my Lord, my God. Thomas is way ahead of his time. Paul said there is coming a day when the God who gave him a name that is above every other name will cause every living being 
to bow down and say, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Thomas is the first one there. Last Thursday, we celebrated Ascension Day. Ascension Day doesn't mean much in the Western church, in the Wesleyan church. For Wesleyans, it's all about the crucifixion and the resurrection. But if you were to travel east to the Eastern Christian church, you would discover a different emphasis. The emphasis is in the ascension. And why is it in the ascension? Because they say it is in the ascension that Jesus is finally established as king. And that's who he always was. And so if on Good Friday, he is your savior. And on Easter Sunday, he is the victor. On ascension day, he is your king. They say in times of moral crisis, the most important thing that a leader can do is to restate the obvious. So can I just, church, restate the obvious? Jesus is king. I don't think that you didn't know that. but I think you might've forgotten it. I think you might've known it for so long it's starting to bore you. Or I think that you have taken that truth that Jesus is king and you've compartmentalized it into some kind of a private belief system as if to say, well, Jesus is king for people who make him king. You've taken what is a historical moment, the ascension of Christ as king. You've taken what is a purely secular moment and you've quarantined it into a little tiny private belief system. It is not just a belief system. It is a fact of history. And I think, I wonder, I worry if maybe we're losing it. For some of you, you're afraid to say it in public because you don't want to be that person. You don't want to offend people from other religions. You don't want to say things that upset people with no religion. For others of you, you're caught in a political culture. You go home and you watch the news or you go online to some screen and you see what's happening until you start to believe that all of the world is political or it's social. For some of you, you're caught in social agendas. It's a cause, it's a movement, and Jesus is your poster boy. He is the ultimate conservative, or he's the revolutionary, or he is the activist who's gonna come and set things right. Maybe he is the great affirmer who just meets me as I am and asks for no change at all. Maybe for some of you, one or two, he is the true Wesleyan. I urge you, church, let him loose. Do not tether him to anything so small as your party or your cause or your movement. He is bigger than that. 
I went to see my father this week in the hospital. He'd been in all week and, well, my father is a conservative. And uh, I go see him day after day and each day there's something on his mind. He watches the news, Fox News. I know some of you are like, Uh, and so there, the, the thing he couldn't get off his mind this week was, uh, quote, that Biden family. Now, had his, had his IV been hooked up to CNN or Politico or the New York Times, it wouldn't have been that Biden family. It would have been those MAGA Republicans or a free and fair election or whatever it is the church is still talking about. And I'm not saying this to disgrace him. I'm saying this to say the man is at least the saint anyone in this room is and yet finds it Hard to resist the current when you are constantly in it, drifting into other agendas. Finally, one day I said to him, when I could stand no more, I said, Dad, there are other things to worry about, you know, didn't matter. I said, here's one. I'm going to preach on the ascension this Sunday. What do you think about that? He said, well, good luck. Didn't matter. Finally, I said, you know what, Pops? Let me read something to you, something you've heard, something you know, but maybe you need to be reminded. I opened my little phone to Ephesians chapter one, and this is what I read. I had to shut the door. I pray you'll be able to understand the incredible greatness of his power in us who believe. This power is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, he is above every ruler, authority, power, and leader, not only in this world, but in the age to come. And God has put all things, not some of them, all things under the authority of this king and gave him authority for the benefit of the church. That's you, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything everywhere with his presence. By the time I finished, we were both laughing. I said, pops, these rulers These authorities who worry you, their lives weigh upon yours like that of a nap. Whatever their position may be, their time is a vapor. It is here today and gone tomorrow. Now I say these things not because you don't believe them. I say them to the church because in all of the movements, in all of the scuttlebutt that we get pulled into, you've forgotten them. It's not that Christ isn't your center. It's that everything has become your center and you can't find him anymore in all of the cluttered center. And I just came to remind you that he is alone. 
He is the image of the invisible God. Don't you ever forget it. The firstborn of all creation. He is the first one to rise from the dead. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the one that was dead and is alive forevermore. Amen. And the mistake you must not make is to think that I am speaking only of prophecy. Oh, sure. Someday. That day is now. Some of you are so deeply rooted in this world. Drinking up the narratives, the only ones you've heard. That everything I've just said in the last few minutes seems to you like a fantasy. You want me to talk about the real world. That is the real world. One day, uh, John... The old man was on the island of Patmos where all prisoners went to die. He went out to the beach and he looked up to the sky and he said he saw a dream. He saw the same thing the boy dreamer saw in Daniel chapter seven, same thing. I was on the island of Patmos a few years ago and I went out to the beach. I looked up in the sky because... I know it's dumb. I wanted to see it. I believe in it. I just, I wanted to see it. This is what he said. I looked and I saw between the throne and the elders, a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered. And I thought to myself, nothing slaughtered is standing and nothing that standing could be slaughtered. And yet here is one that was both slaughtered and standing. I've never seen this before. And this lamb, he took the scroll from the hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he did, the elders fell down and they worshiped the lamb and they sang a song. They were saying, worthy are you to take the scroll because you were slaughtered. There it is again. With your blood, you purchased people for God from every tribe, every language, every nation, and every age. And you made them to be a kingdom of priests who serve our God and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels gathered around the throne, millions of them. And they were saying in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. There it is again to receive power, wealth, wisdom, honor, glory, blessing, And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, even those who were in the earth, even those who were in the sea, and all of them were saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and dominion, glory and honor now and forevermore, amen. And when they said it, the elders fell down and worshiped.
And the mistake you must not make is to think I am speaking only prophecy. That moment is now. If you could see it, it'd take your breath away. Church, behold your king.